Hi, my name is Mark Riggins, and I'm pastor here at LifePoint, located in Plano, Texas, and we meet here every Sunday at 1030, and we are here for your family. I hope today's message is an encouragement to you. Well, good morning. I want to echo what Sean just said, and next Sunday is such a special Sunday. If you've been thinking about bringing someone, it is a great Sunday, and you could come a few minutes early, enjoy some of the snacks we we even in the service are going to have a few giveaways, a couple of surprises. It's going to be a fun day, and so we look forward to Super Sunday next, uh, next week. Bring somebody with you. Now, if you remember a year ago, we were in the middle of snowocalypse or whatever we're calling it, right? Remember that? And we had like all these busted pipes and this crazy like, this is Texas kind of weather. This week, we sort of had a reminder of it, but fortunately, it didn't seem like we had near the damage that we had before. It didn't get quite as cold as it did before, and we're grateful for that. We're glad that you're here, and we're glad for heat, and there are no leaks that we know of, so we're grateful for those things. But I don't know about you, but when a cold front comes in, do you have a comfort food that you kind of go to? We found in our family that you know, we kind of go through seasons of it, but Ginger, my wife, she likes to make gumbo when it gets good and cold. And that's kind of our go-to comfort food when a cold front comes in. What about you? What's your go-to comfort food when a cold front comes in? We're going to do something a little different just for the sake of time. I want to take these two sections right here. And if you would just shout out, what's your go-to comfort food whenever a cold front comes in? What would you guys say? Did you say chicken and dumplings? That sounds amazing. That anytime, that's a good deal. All right, all right, let's take this section. It's kind of one and a half, so we're going to count it that way. No, you know, let's just do all these, both of these sections. What's your go-to comfort food when a, when a cold front comes in? Chili. Chili sounded amazing, and then Mark gave us tomato soup, which, depending on it, like, it's amazing, right? Is that, like, by itself, that's good enough, that's the entree? Now, you pointed at your wife. What does that mean? Oh, she makes it. Okay. Well done, well done, well done. Okay, right here, go-to comfort food whenever the cold front blows in. What is it for you? I heard somebody say something about cornbread. Stew and cornbread. Yeah, we're going to take it up a notch. We're not just eating stew by itself. That's awesome. Well, I tell you what, we're, we're glad that you're here today, and next week we're going to have some food for you as well. We're going to have a lot of fun. Now today, as, as uh, Sean said earlier, we are going to be wrapping up our series on relationships. And what we've talked about in this entire series, if you remember, we talked about dating and how complicated it is. And we talked about some motivations that might be better than just finding someone who's attractive or we have chemistry with. We also talked about marriage and how important it is not to just worry about your right and your role, but maybe unity is a better goal. And then last week, we talked about how do you respond to mean people in your life and we know we all have those from time to time sometimes unfortunately we are those people and we discovered that because God sees all we can do something for them instead of to them and today we're going to talk about broken relationships because we either have them or we will or the people that we love will have them and we want to know how do we respond what is our commitment what does God invite us to do with these broken relationships because here's what we know none of us are perfect you're not perfect I'm not perfect so would you look to the person beside you and just tell them I'm not perfect say that there you go now now listen those were three words now look at them and say and neither are you no don't do that 
Don't do that. You had already said that. I could tell. Some of you were way ahead of me. Yeah. Hey, the, the, the truth is, though, none of us are perfect. Like some of us have a temper or some of us have a deceptive streak or some of us are a little passive at times. And we all have these things in us. These are flaws. Now, when we're a little kid, we don't necessarily see those, do we? We think our parents are amazing. And maybe we go to the playground and we think my dad can beat up your dad. Like we have kind of that mentality, right? But as we get older, we begin to see flaws. And here's the reality. One of the great indicators of maturity is recognizing and accepting the fact that everyone is flawed. Everyone, including me, is flawed. And we don't look for perfect people because they don't exist, right? When you say someone is weird, you better be looking in the mirror, right? Because that's all of us. And if you're like me, sometimes you grow up thinking that the Bible is full of perfect people. It couldn't be any further from the truth. Because as soon as you open up your Bible, in the first few pages, we see a man named Cain being jealous of his brother Abel and killing him. And then we see a man named Noah who gets drunk and curses his grandson. And then we see a man named Lot who has an incestuous relationship with his daughters. And then we see a man named Abraham who's favoring one son, Isaac, over the other, Ishmael. And that's just in the first few pages. I'm telling you, if you read the Bible very far, you're gonna come away thinking, my family doesn't look so bad, right? <laughs> The Bible doesn't sugarcoat it. The Bible is very clear that we're broken people. We're a lot like glass that is predisposed to break. We are predisposed to do wrong. The Bible calls that depravity. We are flawed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We are broken. We are flawed. Now here's what's interesting. This is where the challenge comes in. Even though we're all flawed, we still need relationship with other flawed people. That's where the challenge comes in, isn't it? Because the reality is we need each other. In fact, I would go on to say that our need for relationship is to the human spirit what food and water are to the human body. We were made to be in relationship with other broken people. And here's what's fascinating about that. Anytime two flawed people are in a relationship with each other, it's sort of like dancing with porcupines. Somebody's gonna get hurt. And you got people like that, right? People who've thrown a quill or two or 10 at you, right? And then all of a sudden they left and now you're left over with a broken relationship. So let me get real personal and ask you that. Do you have any broken relationships in your life? Do you have, maybe it's a former spouse, maybe it's a former boss, a former friend, a family member, a parent, someone who once was and now that relationship just seems broken. Here's the question we want to look at today. How do I, how can we take a first step toward reconciling with someone who hurt you? Because we're all flawed and someone will have hurt you along the way. Someone will have taken something, done something, someone owes you something and there is now a broken relationship. Here's the really good news. The Bible has a lot to say about this. In fact, it's right out of the gate in the first book of the Bible where we're gonna look at a story today of two men who had a great relationship and then they had a broken relationship for 20 years, two decades. Not just two men, they're actually two brothers. Not just two brothers, they're actually twins. And their names are Jacob and Esau. And what they do in the end to repair a broken relationship gives us a guideline that we too can follow. 
So if you got your Bibles, I hope you'll follow along. It's in the book of Genesis, the very first book of the Bible. If you don't have a Bible, there's one there in the pew. You can grab it. We're looking at the very first book, and we're going to chapter 25. And we're going to look at these two guys, Jacob and Esau, and we're going to learn from their broken relationship. It started off what may have been a cold front for them, I don't know. But in chapter 25, verse 29, it says, Once when Jacob was cooking some stew, there you go, Christine, cooking some stew, Esau came in from the open country, and he's famished. So he's the hunter. One's an outdoor, uh, an avid outdoorsman. The other one's like me. He's an avid indoorsman, right? And he said to Jacob, Esau did, quick, let me have some of that red stew. I'm famished. And that is why he was also called Edom. And Jacob replies, well, first, Esau, sell me your birthright. Well, look, I'm about to die, Esau said. What good is the birthright to me? But Jacob said, no, you must swear to me first. So Esau swore an oath to him, selling his birthright to Jacob. And then Jacob gave Esau some bread and some lentil stew. He ate and drank and then got up and left. So Esau despised his birthright. Now you've got to be asking, now what's a birthright again? And then in a couple of chapters, we're going to see the term blessing. And all of a sudden, Jacob not only steals the birthright from Esau later on, steal the blessing from Esau. What is that again? Because those aren't terms that we use today. And the truth is a lot of scholars believe it means like a double portion, a double inheritance, a, 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 a place of prestige, a, a family honor, family power. Either way, a lot of scholars disagree, but a lot of scholars are honest and say, we just don't really know. But here's what we do know. There was something valuable that Esau lost and wanted in this exchange. And in the end, here's how Esau felt. Esau felt cheated. Now we know what that feels like because we've all felt that, right? It's, it's sort of like when you go with a friend to a restaurant or, or, or a date or maybe your spouse and, and you order the fries and burger and they order the salad and by the time you sit down, they've eaten half your fries. It's like, what in the world? Like order your own, right? Like this is, I feel a little cheated. Or when you're at work and somebody else does some work and then or you do the work and then they take credit for it. Or, or maybe you look around and you think, I don't have the abilities these other people have and you just feel like, man, that somehow you missed out, like you feel a little bit cheated. We all know what that feels like, but here's the danger. We're all gonna feel cheated along the way. It's what the cheated feeling does to us if left unchecked. And I want you to forward two chapters because we're gonna see this happen in Esau's life and this is really important and this is very relevant for the way you and I live our lives. Look to chapter 27 and verse 41. Yeah, I love hearing your Bible's term. Chapter 27 and verse 41. I would underline these first four words because we're gonna see what happens whenever you feel cheated. Here's what happens. Esau held a grudge. Would you just say that out loud with me, those first four words? Say it with me. Esau held a grudge. Now, what is a grudge? I think the best way to describe a grudge is a grudge is something that's a heavy weight that's hard to put down. And a grudge is never neutral. A grudge is always moving and it's usually morphing into something more hateful. We're gonna see this in this very verse because look at the rest of this verse. Esau held a grudge against Jacob because of the blessing his father had given Jacob instead of Esau. And so Esau said to himself, the days of mourning for my father are near. When he dies, then I will kill my brother Jacob. This grudge has become cold-hearted hate. 
This isn't that unusual. In the Old Testament, we see a lot of this kind of eye-for-eye kind of approach. We see the reality of, like, even last week, remember? David was the one when Nabal cheated him that he said, all right, boys, strap on your sword and let's go deal with this, and no male will live to see the morning, remember? This is the way where we just sort of, revenge was the way of life. It's when Jesus comes on the scene that he introduces a brand new way because it's hard to put down a grudge, but without Jesus, it's almost impossible to put down a grudge. But because we have forgiveness, it is the hallmark of our faith. We are invited to lay down the grudge. I love, in 1988, just before she died, uh, Marganita Lasky, she's one of the leading uh, secular humanists and novelists, she said something in a kind of a surprising candor on a television interview. She said, what I envy most about you Christians is your forgiveness because I have nobody to forgive me. You see, when Jesus died on the cross, he introduced the world's first religion where forgiveness wasn't earned. But here's the challenge. It's still hard to lay that grudge down. Even though we've been forgiven, it's hard to forgive and to lay it down. But here's the warning, and you already know this. If you don't, that grudge, it will crush you. We all know people like this, right, who've been hurt and then every day goes by and they become a little colder and a little more bitter until where eventually years go by and that grudge has actually deformed their heart to become hardened and cold people. Oh, it's so dangerous. Now, Rebecca, she's so worried. Rebecca's the mom of both Jacob and Esau. She's so worried, as a good mom would be, that she ends up sending Jacob to a foreign country because she's afraid that her son Jacob is going to be killed by her other son Esau. So she says, I want you to go to a foreign country and marry a wife. Well, he ends up doing that, and he's gone for 20 years. And all the while, he's carrying a weight of guilt, and Esau has the grudge. He doesn't. Lay it down. Now here's a question I have for us here in 2021. What's the deal with grudges? Why is it that any of us would carry a heavy grudge? Why are grudges so attractive anyway? What is it that causes us to not lay those down? I just want to illustrate this box if you're wondering where this came from. I think when we see a grudge, we think of it as a box we're standing on and that we somehow have a perceived advantage now. I feel really tall right now, by the way. We have a perceived advantage where we think, oh, I can now be morally superior to the person who hurt me. I now can be safe and further away. I now can look down on them. I can hold this over their head. I don't behave like them and I can be the victim up here because of what they did to me and I don't necessarily want to lay this down and let them off the hook. And so we think that we're somehow at an advantage by standing on the grudge. But here's what you and I know, that's a lie. We aren't standing on the grudge at all, are we? In fact, if you remember, what is it that Esau, how, did he, how was he connected with his grudge? Remember, Esau held his grudge. He didn't stand on his grudge. Now that means, let's see if I can pick this up. Ready? You going to pray for me here? All right. So that means we hold the grudge. When you hurt me, I walk around and I'm holding it. And at first it's a little inconvenient, but after a while it gets really heavy. 
And after a while, I struggle to move forward the way I should and the way God wants me to move forward because I'm carrying this grudge with me everywhere I go. Just like Esau, I hold my grudge. Here's the other challenge. Not only does it hold me from going forward, but in my relationships, there's something now between me and you. I can't get as close to you as I want to get to you, and you can't get as close to me as you may want to get to me because there's this grudge in the way. It's very much a part of who I am, and it's continuing to deform me every step of the way. I'm becoming a little harder, a little more bitter, a little colder, and you can see this, and it's becoming more and more prominent in my life. And even though it's a heavy weight, it's hard to put down. It's hard to set it down completely, but we must. It's necessary. In fact, I love the C.S. Lewis quote where he talks about Getting over a painful experience is much like crossing the monkey bars. You have to let go at some point in order to move forward. So let me ask you a question, a real personal question. Are you carrying a grudge today? When you walked in, others may not see it, but those who are closest to you, how would they answer that question for you? Do you keep telling stories over and over again that you wish you weren't telling anymore? Do you think about them whenever your mind is idle? Do you still have imaginary conversations and imaginary arguments? Are you carrying a grudge? And wouldn't life be better if you could lay that grudge down? After 20 years, Jacob and Esau are tired. They're tired of carrying their grudge. And so they decide it's time to lay it down. It's time to reconcile. But... Jacob is scared to death. You ever felt that way? If you're going to try and reconcile with somebody, his heart's beating really fast. Because remember the last time he talked to Esau, Esau was threatening to murder him. So the first thing he does is he takes it to God. And he says, God, I need you because I'm going to try to reconcile with my brother. I'm going to go back to my homeland and try to reconcile with him. But God, I need you. And he doesn't pray the kind of prayer that says, oh, you know what, God, would you bless me? No, he doesn't pray the kind of platitude of, God, would you give me the hedge of protection? Would you give me traveling mercies? It's nothing like that. Like, he is not dependent. He is desperate. He's saying, God, I can't do this without you. I won't let go of you. I need you, and I will die without you. This is that famous story where he's wrestling with an angel, and he says he sees the very face of God at the end of chapter 32. Why? Because he's about to try to reconcile a 20-year-old broken relationship, and he knows I have to have God in order to make this work. And that's where we pick up the story. Jacob goes to Esau, and I want you to see what happens next because it is frankly a beautiful story. If you'll forward in your Bibles to chapter 33, all the way over to chapter 33, we pick up the story where now Jacob is going to Esau. He's had this wrestling with the angel, and now he's before Esau. They're seeing each other for the first time in 20 years. And we pick it up in verse 3. It says, he, Jacob, he himself went on ahead and watch this. He bowed down to the ground seven times as he approached his brother. He bowed down seven times. This is incredible humility that he is showing right out of the gate. By the way, reconciliation always begins with humility. And Jacob is being humble. But Jacob's heart's beating fast too. Because Jacob doesn't know how his brother Esau is going to react. Will he make good on his promise and kill me? Will he hurt me? Will he hurt my family? Will he, you know, curse me? Will he ignore me? I mean, I don't know how this is going to go. How hateful will he be in his response? And we see it in verse 4. Look at Esau's response. But Esau ran to meet Jacob and embraced him. 
and threw his arms around his neck and kissed him, and they wept. Isn't that a beautiful reunion? The twins are together again after 20 years because Jacob was humble, and they both laid down their grudge. Now, I want you to see verse 9, because in verse 9, it reveals a subtle little um, truth that counters what I believe we are tempted to believe when it comes to being cheated in life. Look at verse nine. But Esau, so, so Jacob is coming, he's got a lot of cattle and he's gonna give this extraordinary gift over to his brother Esau. But Esau said, hey, I have plenty, my brother. Keep what you have for yourself. I, I, don't, I have plenty. Now this is fascinating because when we feel cheated, isn't our greatest frustration is that we will do without what we would have had had we not been cheated? And that means I'm not going to have plenty because I was cheated, and that's part of the rub. And here we are reminded that when you are cheated, God provides. When Esau was cheated, God provided. And in the same way, when you are cheated, it's an opportunity for us to lean back into the providence and sovereignty of God in the moment where we don't understand how he's gonna provide, but we know that he will. Jacob, oh, he insists. He's carried this guilt long enough. Look at verse 10. He says, no, 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 please, said Jacob. If I have found favor in your eyes, accept this gift from me. I love this. This is so powerful. He says, for to see your face is like seeing the face of God now that you have received me favorably. See, up until this point, Jacob only sees Esau as a murderer. Up until this point, Esau has only seen Jacob as a deceiver. But in the reconciliation, they see the face of God. And aren't we that way? Our tendency is to define someone by their worst moment. They are only what they did to me. They are only what they took from me. They are only what they owe me. And when the reconciliation took place, all of a sudden, Jacob is able to say, Esau, you are capable of evil, but you're also capable of good. And in this reconciliation, I now see the face of God. I see the value in you again. And I see the heart of God in this reconciliation. You see, the greatest example, this is why this is such a theme throughout scripture, the greatest example of a broken relationship is my relationship with God and your relationship with God. Where we cheated through our sin, through our brokenness, through our wrongdoing, we broke our relationship with a perfect and holy God. But God couldn't stand that. And as April reminded us, he pursued us with his goodness and his love, and he sent his only son Jesus to this world to go to a cross and bear my sin for one reason, he wanted to be reconciled with me. It is his heart, it is his passion to reconcile relationships. Well, how do we do that? And I love what Philippians says in Philippians 2. I just want you to see this real quick because this summarizes our entire series on relationships. I want you to see Philippians chapter 2, we begin with verse 5. It says, in all your relationships, whether you're dating with your kids, with your parents, with your spouse, with somebody who broke a relationship, with all your relationships with one another, what do we summarize this and say? Have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. He is our model. It's a pretty good model. And what does that look like? Who, Jesus, 
being the very nature God, God the Son, with all the privileges of being divine, he did not consider being equal with God something to be used to his advantage. Instead, he made himself nothing by taking on the form of a servant, being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man. Jesus humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Jesus saw his suffering on earth as obedience to God's eternal plan. Jesus, who was perfect, paid the ultimate sacrifice. Jesus, who saw a broken relationship, gave everything to restore that relationship. And I just want to tell you, if you're like me, and sometimes we struggle with this, I would just spend some time in Philippians 2 and just sit with this passage and remember what Christ did for you and me on the cross. And it puts it all in context because the question we keep coming back to is, well, how do I lay down the grudge? How do I repair a broken relationship? And I just want to tell you, one of the fastest ways to do that, reconciliation will begin with a trip to the cross You might even go back to Philippians 2 and just remember what Christ has done for us. Otherwise, if I start with me and what I think I deserve and how I feel cheated, I'll never lay down that grudge. That's why I love this quote by Andy Stanley where he says, in the shadow of my hurt, well, forgiveness just feels like a decision to reward my enemy and why in the world would I want to do that? But in the shadow of the cross, forgiveness is merely a gift from one undeserving soul to another, amen? It turns out the ground is level at the foot of the cross. And this is where we can find our grudge when I remember what Christ has laid down for me. I experienced this personally in 2011. I was in Ventura, Southern California, where our family had recently moved. And I was in the backyard walking around barefooted. And I was on the phone with a friend from West Texas. And my friend from West Texas' name was name uh, is Isaac, and he said, yeah, you're not going to like him in a minute, by the way, because he's going to be way too honest in the story, but Isaac said, uh, hey, did you and that friend ever reconcile? Well, he was referring to a friend that I had for 15 years that was a really close relationship, a, a friendship who Um, who I worked with, it was somebody that we had taken trips together, it was somebody that, honestly, the fracture of the relationship was like losing an an older brother. It was uh, so deep, the wound, that we didn't talk for three years at that point. And it felt like kind of a modern Jacob and Esau kind of a, a, you know, fracture. And Isaac, my friend, said, uh, so have you guys reconciled? And I thought, man, I thought you were my friend, Isaac. You know what he did. Why in the world would you even ask that? And then he said... I just know the Bible says that we're supposed to keep short accounts. I thought, don't be throwing that in my face, all right? (laughs) And so honestly, here's what I did. I agreed with him and secretly believed I knew things he didn't understand. And we said goodbye and we ended our phone call. And then in the moments that followed, I remember the spirit beginning to move in me and asked, so Mark, why, why haven't you reconciled? I took a deep breath and I knew I was about to take a journey that scared me to death. So I pulled up my laptop computer and I began to compose an email to this former friend and 
I had my wife, Ginger, and another pastor read it because I didn't want to mess it up because I knew this was very fragile. And once they approved, I sent it, and then we began a correspondence, and every one of my responses had to be read by both my wife and this former pastor. I needed that. And so over the next few months, we had dozens of exchanges, and here's the part that surprised me. What surprised me was I ended up expressing a lot of regrets and asking for forgiveness way more than I thought I needed to or ever would have anticipated that I would have because as long as I was carrying around my grudge, everything was black and white. I was innocent, he was guilty, I was the lamb, he was the wolf, right? But all of a sudden in the conversations, I began to see something I hadn't seen before and things became a lot grayer. It reminded me of this great John Ortberg quote where he talks about this very thing. As a general rule, where there is hurt, I am both the victim of and the agent of wrongdoing. In most relationships where deep pain is involved, I must forgive and seek forgiveness. Turns out we were two equally broken people who were both deeply hurt. But God allowed us to be reconciled. And I will tell you in the process of that conversation, when it ended and we experienced reconciliation, we didn't return the relationship to where it was when it had been like a daily relationship. That season had passed, but we did experience peace with each other. He would agree, I would agree. We had reconciled to that place. And all these years later, 10 years later, I will tell you that of all the things I've gotten to experience in my own personal walk with Jesus, That was one of the most powerful and spiritual experiences I have ever had where I genuinely felt like I saw the heart of God and it still provided such meaningful healing in my life. And I just want to tell you, it is never too late to reconcile. So here's the question. How then do I take the first step toward reconciling with someone who hurt you? I want to give you five guidelines based on the story we've read. Number one, take it to God. Just like Jacob did. It's got to begin here. Look, as we're saying in our memory verse, we're nothing but branches. He is the source of life. He is the vine. He is the one who bears fruit. But apart from him, we can do nothing. So we have to begin with him. And we have to stay there. Not in a dependent prayer, I'm telling you, in a desperate prayer. Just like Jacob did. Number two, aim for peace. So the temptation, I think, sometimes is to put undue pressure on ourselves with a relationship that may have been a spouse or may have been a best friend, and we're trying to restore the intimacy to where it was. But that season may have passed, and that's okay. What Paul tells us is, as much as is possible for you, live at peace with all people. Aim for peace. Number three, apologize early. There's always something we can apologize for. Unless it's a case of abuse, there's always something we can apologize for. And in those cases, what it shows is, number one, we're leading with humility just as Christ did, but we are also revealing that our motive is reconciliation, not justice. Then number four, seek to understand. This is where I want, when we're done, not that you can state my case, but when we're done, I can state your case to a point that it satisfies you I just want to hear your side I want to understand where you're coming from then finally number five don't accuse don't accuse there's no good in this there's no benefit in this the goal is peace the goal is reconciliation and one of the ways if you're like me I have to learn how to frame things and that means I'm going to use I felt statements not you did 
statements. That might even be, I give them the benefit of the doubt by saying, I doubt you even intended this, but this is the way I felt. If you need to work through the issues I I felt versus you did. And then I would just say this, repeat, start all over, take it to God, aim for peace, apologize early, seek to understand, don't accuse, keep doing that over and over again. Maintain a posture of dependence on God. Why does this matter? Why can't we just move on? Because reconciliation, it mirrors the heart of our God. Reconciliation mirrors his heart. Like Jacob, you will see the face of God in the process. You will declare to a world that just moves on that there's a better way. And that when Christ came on the cross, you mirror the gospel when you reconcile a broken relationship. It mirrors the heart of our God. With that said, I want us to have our memory verse one more time together. And so would you do me a favor And would you stand with me? We're going to say it out loud together. And then I'm going to give you a warning. Then we're going to take it off the screen and we're going to say it out loud together again. All right? Some of you just re-grabbed your Bibles again. Hang on, you'll get it. John chapter 15, verse 5. These are the words of Jesus. Say it with me. I am the vine, you are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing, John 15, 5. Now, without the help of the screen, one more time, the words of Jesus, he said, I am the vine, you are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing, John 15, 5. Good job. Give yourselves a hand. Way to go. Another verse put to memory that God will use from time to time in in moments where we need it, you have it. Now, I want to say this before we close in prayer and we're going to sing one final song together, that if you're new or newer here at LifePoint, today, right after the service, we're going to have about 10 minutes, a little meet and greet for you. So me and my wife, Ginger, and some of the other pastors, we're going to be right across this way in the connection room. It's right across the hallway as soon as you go out. We'll just be there for five or ten minutes. If you would, you just swing by and let me meet you. That's what we want to do and invite you to right after the service today. All right, let me pray for you as we close. Let's pray. Father, I thank you so much for the fact that you took the first step in reconciliation. And you give us hope beyond this life because of your son, Jesus. Father, you know the heart of the people who are here today, online or here in person. Maybe they're listening in the podcast later in the week. You know their hearts. You know the weight. You know the detail of their pain, of their relationship. You know the fatigue they feel right now. Father, I just pray that you would just comfort them and that you would encourage them in the place they find themselves. God, we know reconciliation is so close to your heart as you gave your only son, Jesus, to reconcile us. So today we know we need your strength. We need your blessing. We need your favor. So today, God, I just pray for every person here who is considering taking this significant step that they would come to you in desperation and that you would lead them in wisdom and encourage and comfort them where comfort's needed, but that we would move in boldness knowing that we want to mirror your heart toward reconciliation. 
May you be glorified and you alone, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. I hope today's message was an encouragement to you. And if you'd like a little more information about our church, just visit us on our website at lifepointplano.org.